You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. I'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. If you'd remain standing for the reading of God's Word, I'll start in verse 21. The words of Jesus Christ himself, to whom every sphere of life belongs. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right, maybe seated. Good to see you all this morning. <clears throat> Just a reminder, we got family worship today, so we got kids' totes. We got some sermon notes. So kids, here's the deal. You know, most, of you, most of you know the drill. Um, fill them out. Come on up. Got a, got a treat in here for you. Got something in here for you. And uh, Mr. Reichart, you grab this. So find this guy right after service. He'll look over your notes. And you can pick something out of the box. Thanks, Aaron. Also, the restless kids' room right across the hall, if that serves you as well. Kids, say it again and again and again. You're not a distraction. You are a blessing. So it's good to see you. It's good that you're in worship service. It's good that you're hearing the preaching of God's Word, regardless of what age you are. So I, I've concluded something as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. We've gone through it really slowly, obviously. I've concluded that going through the Sermon on the Mount is not a great church growth strategy. Not a great strategy. It's not one you're going to find in the church growth handbooks or books that are all out there, all that nonsense, all that noise. The reason why I say this is because when you slow down and actually read the words of our Lord, you're actually put into an uncomfortable position. You're just like, whoa. Whoa. Jesus said, what? Jesus wants you to conform, which means he calls you to change. I mean, get get that in your head. Jesus wants you to conform, which means he's actually calling you to change. And who wants to change? Like we, we raise our hand and say yes, 
But then when you actually go about the process of change, we're like, whoa, you're actually calling me to do something that I don't even know if I know how to do, I'm not comfortable with. Change is hard and it can be uncomfortable. So if I wanted to actually like double the size of the church in two months, all I need to do is tell you what you want to hear and not what you need to hear. Did you catch that? All I have to tell you, to grow this church in five minutes, all I have to do is tell you what you want to hear, but not what you need to hear. Namely, you need to hear from God. So you all know how I roll. I'm not going about what we want to hear. We want to hear from God. It's uncomfortable. I know that, but it's for your good. It's for my good. On a related note, I do not know if there has been a sermon series that I've ever preached, so pastoral ministry over eight years, that has challenged my heart and my life more than this particular sermon series, and I mean that. Every Tuesday, usually every Tuesday, I begin my, my Greek exegesis, and then I realize very quickly as I'm going through that, I'm walking toward the call to be continually transformed by the grace of Christ. Like Tuesday comes and I'm like, man, I'm walking into another fire hydrant. I'm not in the kiddie pool. I'm actually being dumped right into the deep end. Here's what I've been preaching to myself, and I just want to say to you, this morning you are confronted with a Sermon on the Mount, and you are called by Jesus to transform your life. But transformation does not take place overnight. We all can admit that. You know, you just don't wake up one day usually. You're like, ah, oh, I'm changed. No, it's a process. It's a journey. The pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. We call it sanctification. And if you take the words of our Lord seriously, like if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you take the words of our Lord seriously, then you can experience serious change. But that's dependent upon you coming to God and saying, you know what? I am going to take this seriously. Sean Powers is going to take the words of Christ seriously. Then you will see serious change. Before I pray, um, I'm just going to give you one heads up as we continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in your Bible and you continue on past this section on anger, which we're going to get to in a moment, you'll know that next week we're going to talk about lust and that's a sensitive topic, and I acknowledge that. We do have Redemption Hill kids, which is a good thing. And I just want you to keep in mind that I'm going to be mindful of the entire audience, but that's a topic that's coming, and we need to deal with it. It's right here. Can't get past it. And we're going we're gonna to go right into it. So I just want to give you that heads up, especially parents. So I'm going to pray, ask for God's help, and look at this amazing passage that challenges our heart and our lives regarding anger. Heavenly Father, my chief prayer is twofold. One, I just want to be faithful to your word. And, oh God, I pray that your word would indeed impact all of our lives and all of our hearts. And that is a work that is not merely intellectual, but is a work that the Holy Spirit does. So we, as we look at this topic of anger and reconciliation, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't walk away just with empty heads, but we'd walk away encouraged, know that you've provided a path for us 
to think about how to take sin seriously, in particular, the sin of anger. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus preached on anger so that we could be helped today. We're thankful and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite theologians is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I put him in my top 15-ish. Not everyone's favorite. I understand that. An amazing man. Wrote many good books. Uh, One of the reasons why I I like Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he walked the talk. Right? you got a lot of people who will spout certain things but not actually live up to what they're saying. And there's areas where I disagree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and that's fine and all. But you you got to say this about him. He walked the talk. He preached a message of grace, and then he expected himself to constantly live in such a way where he knew he needed God's grace. In his most well-known book, top two at least, of The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer takes his cues actually from the Sermon on the Mount. I think I mentioned this in the first sermon on this sermon series. Uh, One of the essential points of The Cost of Discipleship is his distinction between Cheap grace and costly grace. Like a surgeon, like a skilled surgeon, Bonhoeffer takes out the cancer that is cheap grace. He takes out the tumor, and Bonhoeffer explains the call to costly grace. So what is cheap grace and what is costly grace, according to Bonhoeffer? Cheap grace, he says, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is the sacrament of communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. A person who lives on cheap grace, reads Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and then they get to chapter 5 and they skip it. They get to chapter 6 and they skip that. Then they get to chapter 7 and they skip that chapter. Why people who live by cheap grace skip those chapters? Because they're confronted with what Christ demands from his disciples. In contrast, costly grace, which is basically the title of Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, it is costly to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Costly grace realizes that to live out the Sermon on the Mount requires dying to the self. Costly grace requires relying on Jesus Christ every single moment of every single day. The path of costly grace takes to heart every beatitude and every teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So we want to be a church that takes seriously the costly grace of Christ, which is why we are in the Sermon on the Mount. It's important to remember that each beatitude and specific teaching of Jesus is connected to the whole. In other words, you cannot rightly understand one beatitude or teaching topic of Jesus if you disconnect it from surrounding verses or the overall structure of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, it's critical to realize that the lead-in to today's passage on anger and reconciliation is Matthew 5.20, the last verse from last week. We read this, 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, what? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So last week, I began to answer the question, what it means to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. So in the weeks ahead, Jesus is going to tease out in more detail what the righteous life looks like. Now, here's a hint to the question. What does it mean to become more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? Well, we can start with, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees. Don't be like them. And so today's passage begins a series of teachings where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. We're going to run into this over the next at least seven sermons in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus is effectively saying, the Pharisees told you this about the law, huh, but I'm going to tell you this. Jesus is not pitting his teaching against the Old Testament law, but he provides a proper interpretation of the Old Testament law. That's what's going on here. People hear that and they're like, ah, we don't need the law anymore. No, no, no. You heard it said from the Pharisees, but I'm telling you, this is how you actually can understand the Ten Commandments, right? Again, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law, and he came to see that you understand how the moral law has been applied first to your heart and then your life. A lot is going on in Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 to 26. I wonder if you see the depth and intensity of the statements made by Jesus. Um, I want you to know the veracity of this passage by framing it with what could be a real-world conflict. Uh, let's say we have a Christian man, good dude, he's in the church, and he hires his brother, another guy in the church, to do a job at his house. Uh, he is going to build his friend uh, a she-shed for his wife. Want a she-shed, any ladies out there? It's basically the equivalent of like the man cave, right? Well, something in the backyard. I've seen them come up, pop up every now and then. So they agree to the terms of the job and work begins. Now, let's say that midway through the work and weeks later, the homeowner realizes his friend is not up to snuff. It's costing way too much. And not only that, his friend took the bulldozer through his backyard and knocked down half of his fence. She shed is just quite, uh, twice the cost. And all the homeowner can see is like dollar bills being flushed down the toilet, right? So there are two people in this conflict. One person is on the verge of anger, and the other person might see problems, but we don't know yet. What is the way forward, and how can each person avoid sin in hopes to finding resolution? Lots of different examples you could throw out there. There's just one. But I think Jesus maps out the way forward. One comment before actually looking at the details of today's text. I'm going to make a comment about the Word of God. The Bible is amazingly practical. We tend to miss that from time to time. Yes, the Word of God gives us theology, but it also shows how, how to live out our theology. The Bible shows us how to live distinctly before God. So if this is true, then why do so many Christians go outside the Bible in attempts to figure out how to live and thrive? Listen, I'm not dogging quality resources that can help a person uh, go through issue X. How do, I, how do I go through this problem? 
but I think it's a fair observation that when issue X comes up, the default is to jump on Amazon.com and find the right resource to help fix the problem. We jump to so-called experts and circumvent God. Today's sermon is an excellent, today's passage is an excellent example of finding practical solutions to conflicts. By the time I'm done, I hope you can see how to plug and play the teachings of our, of our Lord. When you're in conflict with a friend, what is your initial impulse and to resolve the dispute, right? I hope it's to go to God's word first. Now back to our passage. Oftentimes when there's conflict, there is anger, right? Anger. There's not a person in this room who has not experienced anger, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've experienced anger in your life because I know what the answer is. The answer is yes. But what is anger? In the Bible, there's two types of anger that a person can generally experience. A person can have a righteous anger and a sinful anger. So we've got two categories we need to, need to work with here. Righteous anger is when a person hates sin. Uh, you might hate the sin in your life. You hate the sin in the life of your friend. And you can rightly hate sin throughout the world. For example, your friend has a perpetual problem. Let's say he belittles his wife all of the time, and it's a sin. You can hate that sin and still love him through the battle, right? Here's an another example of like righteous anger. It is good to be angry that um, abortion and human trafficking exists in this world. You should be angry that a segment of our society champions the murder of unborn babies. You should be angry that children and women are kidnapped and enslaved to do things that only hell can come up with. You should be angry that pimps and organizational structures bolster human trafficking. You can be angry at that. You should be angry. Ephesians 4, 26, and rightly uh, Ryan pointed out that Ephesians is going to accompany us as we go through Matthew 5. And it says this, be angry and do not sin. Jesus was angry because of the money changers in the temple, Matthew 21. Jesus was angry with the Pharisees in Mark 3. The context of Ephesians is different from Matthew and Mark, but the biblical principle is the same. There is a place for anger if the object of your anger is the result of a manifestation of sin. We can be angry with sin all day long. But Matthew 5, is not talking about righteous anger, right? That's not one category. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is addressing a sinful, or what I'm calling a personal anger. We read in verse 21, You have heard it said of old, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, I want you to gather the depth of what Jesus is saying. When you are sinfully angry, that is akin to what? Murder. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this passage. You should not be angry with your brother. 
anger in the heart towards any human being, and especially to those who belong to the household of faith, the church, is, according to our Lord, something that is reprehensible in the sight of God as murder. Now on the surface, what Jesus is saying seems ludicrous, right? Like on the surface, you're just like, huh? Are you serious? How in the world are murder and being angry with someone in your heart possibly related? How do they compare? But then you realize Jesus is going deeper than your external actions. I appreciate how uh, 16th century reformer Heinrich Bollinger sums up verses 21 and 22. It's a a little bit cluttered, but follow me. It'll be up there if you want to read it. But it's really helpful. The Lord does not simply forbid murder, but all things else in which murder consists. All egging on, right? You ever egg someone on? Wrongly? To do the wrong thing? It's where peer pressure comes from. All egging on, therefore, and provoking to anger is utterly forbidden. Slanderous tots and brawling speeches are flatly prohibited. Strife, wrath, and envy are plainly uh, commanded to be suppressed. You see here, therefore, that anger, slander, brawling, and all other tokens of the mind moved to utter ill words are flatly forbidden. What must you do? You must forsooth. I had to look up that word. Full disclosure. It means like, indeed. <laughs> I never heard it. But you must forsooth come into charity again with him who you've offended. You may lay aside all wrath and envy, unless you would rather have all the honor that you do to God be imputed for sin to you, and that perhaps you would choose rather utterly to be condemned. Now, after reading the quote, and again, it was cluttered, but if you kind of just walk it through, I feel like you can just move on, like Bollinger nails it. But here's a few more thoughts on anger. Now, Jesus tells the crowd, and now he tells you, your pastor said this, but I say to you. <laughs> but why the correction? Were the Pharisees wrong for saying that you should not murder? Of course not, right? So what's the problem? The problem is that the Pharisees were concerned about external actions, which in turn created a very shallow religion, right? They're concerned with the external actions, which created a shallow religion. The Pharisees could walk around and show how holy they were because they did not murder. But Jesus corrects their hermeneutic. He corrects their interpretation of the Bible. He tells them, you think the sixth commandment is about murder? Well, how about we take the commandment a little deeper? Let's talk about what precedes murder. Let's talk about the anger in your heart. Again, Jesus is not talking about righteous anger. He is addressing the anger that you direct toward another person. Jesus addresses anger that takes root deep within the heart and creates many things such as bitterness. Ever been bitter towards some, someone? How does that begin? Anger. He is addressing the anger that stymies resolution and creates division. Jesus does not mince words when talking about sinful anger. When you are sinfully angry with your brother or sister, you will be liable or deserve judgment. 
back to my example of the Christian homeowner hiring another Christian brother to build his wife a she shed. Don't you think he would be tempted, the homeowner would be tempted to anger because of the lackluster job? I think so. I would be. How does Jesus address the homeowner? He says that the anger in his heart is equivalent to murder. Now, you might think, of course, he should be angry. Well, here's the question. Is the anger directed toward the sin or the sinner? If there is sin involved. Allow me to pause for a moment and make a footnote. It is vital that you pay attention to your heart, right? Jesus is addressing the heart, which means it's vital you pay attention to your own heart. Actions are easy to figure out, right? That's easy to figure out. I can see what you do and put things together but your heart requires special attention. You need to constantly go to the Lord asking for help to sort out whatever it is happening in your heart. That is what we see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount. The heart is the place where you can stop sinful anger from manifesting itself with sin. The second half of verse 22, um, if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to look at it. It shows us the manifestation of anger. Jesus warns, whoever insults his brother will, I mean, insulting means, and it's implying that there's words being used, right? Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The hell of fire. When you are angry, your heart gives way to insulting words. The homeowner might say something like this, I can't believe that incompetent fill-in-the-blank took down my fence. Man, he's going to get the worst Google review. Type of the keyboard all in. I mean, I'm sure you could imagine a response, right? However, Jesus says, when you insult your brother, you're subject to the council, or the Greek there's literally Sanhedrin, right? Why would you be subject to the Sanhedrin? Because you're actually the one in sin. Conflict necessitates two parties, and I'll talk about the other party in a moment, but anger is a real problem in the eyes of the Lord. Even when you say something like fool, which you know, in the Greek there's raka. When you say fool, Jesus says you are deserving of hell. If you know your Greek, it's Gehenna. The hell fire. Now it seems intense, but that's kind of the point. Jesus wants you to see the danger of sinful anger. Listen, the homeowner had the, has the right to fire the guy for not doing a great job, right? He may even have a righteous anger, but he does not have the right to insult him. And instead of being angry, what should the homeowner pursue? right? Love. The love of Christ is the most potent tool to uproot anger. And we've seen this from Romans 13, right? How do you live out the commandments? You love one another. Loving others is the fulfilling of the commandments. Listen, in the kingdom of heaven, and this is touching everyone, everyone, kids, adults, everyone. And in the kingdom of heaven, the economy is different. In the kingdom of heaven, justice looks different from the world. In the kingdom of heaven, your heart is equally important to your actions. 
You need to understand this. The ethics of the kingdom are vastly different from our culture. You know, we were tipped off about this when we read a couple weeks ago, blessed are you when you are what? Persecuted. Like who talks like that? Jesus does. Who says, don't be angry at another person, even if by all human metrics, you have been clearly wronged? Well, Jesus says, do not be sinfully angry. We will encounter similar themes when Jesus talks about retaliation later in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about what it means to love your enemies. The ethics of the kingdom, which manifest in actions, go by a different playbook than our culture. It's not like you're learning the playbook of the Minnesota Vikings, and all of a sudden you play for the Chicago Bears and you're learning that playbook. No, it's much different. The transformation that has taken place when God saved you is like you were playing for the Vikings, and now you're playing tennis. Totally different. Jesus says this way of living, the Sermon on the Mount way, is the way to flourish. It's going to cost you to grow. It's going to cost you. There's costly grace involved, but you will flourish. In Matthew 5, 23, I think a subtle but significant shift takes place. When you slow down to read verse 22 and then verse 23, you see that Jesus slightly shifts gears. In verse 23, Jesus begins to show us the path of reconciliation. Uh, the principal players in verses 23 to 26 are the accused and the accuser. Even more specific, the two principal players are Christians. Go back to my illustration. The Christian homeowner is angry. The other guy did a poor job. And the moment he knocked down the fence, he knew he did a poor job. Instead of making money, he was going to own money. Now, I understand that it's true that Jesus did not have my illustration in mind, right? I get that. Jesus might be talking about one angry person in verses 21 and 22, and that person needs to find reconciliation in verses 23 to 26. I get that. But I'm just trying to put some color on the teaching of Christ because conflicts are often what? A two-way street. It takes two to tango. Read, read with me verses 23 to 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother, your brother who might be angry at you, has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. So we got to step back for a moment, ask a few questions. What's this gift? What's this altar? What's going on? Because actually a lot of commentaries are silent on that. In the temple of Jerusalem, right, the time of Christ, Jews were able to worship they were able to worship by offering a gift at the altar. Now, technically, the priest would put the gift on the altar, but the altar was visible to everyone. Long story short, offering a gift at the altar was an act of worship to God. That's what's going on. Worship was going on here. So what is Jesus saying? I can envision, I can envision this because this has happened before, where it is Sunday morning, a spouse wakes up on the wrong side of bed right? Again, we all can raise our hand on that one, right? Spouse wakes up on the wrong side of bed. All of a sudden, something unkind is said. Sinful words. The temptation is to get in the car, drive to church in silence, and hope that somehow during worship, the Holy Spirit convicts the other person of their sin. You ever been there? Yeah, it chuckles, I know. Huh. 
And then after church, there's like repentance and tears and you, know, you can imagine the rest. Now, I'm a big, big advocate of attending church. Glad you're all here, regardless of how you came here. I think church must be a priority in your life. It is a place where you can come with all your brokenness and all your sin. I hope that Redemption Hill is a place where you can rest in the grace and mercy of Christ. I hope this church is a place where the Holy Spirit works in your, works in your life to nudge you toward a place of repentance. But I want you to see the emphasis of Christ in verses 23 and 24. When there is a conflict between you and your spouse, between you and your friend, your coworker, or a sibling, you must place the highest priority on reconciliation. Like, think about that. Verse 25 drive home the point. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. At least the accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. The words come to terms quickly can also mean and, and more literally mean make friends quickly. I like the latter translation a lot more because the implication is that the conflict often arises with someone who's close to you. It could be a person in this church. It could be a sibling or your spouse. Bottom line, what Jesus is saying is when there is conflict, make haste to find resolution. As soon as you identify that you sinned against someone, make a beeline to the person you have offended. Do not dilly-dally. Do not say to yourself, I'll get to that later. Hey, man, if you're, you're, if you're the passive type, I'm the passive type. This is challenging to me. Some of you, when you see a problem, you run right into it. Like you're running in, you got a fireman going into a burning house. You're going after me. I'm kind of going the other way. But Jesus says, you got to get to it now. If you've sinned against someone, your highest priority is to pursue reconciliation. Now, what keeps a person from taking steps of reconciliation? Lots of answers, but here's one. How about this? Pride. Your own ego. Do you want to know why some marriages, for example, remain strained? Because there's conflict? Pride. Pride prevents you from pursuing reconciliation. Here's another interpretive difference I have with the ESV, which is what I read, English Standard Version. You are to become friends while you're on the road together, right? Uh, the word court, think courtroom in verse 25, is actually not there in the Greek. It could be implied, but it's not here. Instead, the Greek word hadas literally means road. I think Jesus is again pointing out the intimacy between these two people who are in conflict. Conflict erupts between two friends, so stop what you're doing. Come to terms or make friends quickly. And even as you're making your way to the civic courts while on the road, maybe you're in the same car together, still make every effort to find resolution. Make every effort. One of the implications of the teaching of our Lord is that there's a priority to find resolution first outside the civic courts or secular institutions. Now, I'm not dismissing secular courts, right? Scripture clearly shows there is a place for government in, in the world, right? 
But what would it look like for Christians to first make every effort to find resolution well before the civil authorities are called in, right? When Christian reconciliation is done well, what kind of example is on display to the world around us? I think it's a massive example, especially in our overly litigious society, right? Everyone's suing everyone these days. Christians can act a little differently, a lot differently. What if the man who was hired to do the she shed and did a horrible job on the she shed and knocked down the fence stopped what he was doing to pursue reconciliation? Do you think his pursuit to come to terms could abate the anger in the man that hired him? Like the man who's angry still, got, still needs to own that. But we need to remember reconciliation. It's got to go both ways. Most times, it's both ways. Listen, Jesus has strong words for a sinfully angry person. Our Lord invokes hellfire. But our Lord also has strong words for someone unwilling to put things right. Jesus says, if you've done something wrong and you refuse to come to terms with your accuser, then the civic courts may have to intervene. Take a look at verse 26. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. A person unwilling to pursue reconciliation and make things right might be put into prison and does not have the right to get out until the debt is paid back. So I got a couple thoughts about verse 25 and 26. First, there is a sense that justice matters. You read the Old Testament, you get into the New Testament, justice matters to God. Civic courts have a place in society. Jesus mentions a judge, a guard, and a prison. However, civic justice is not the main focus of this passage. The reality of civic justice should push a person or two people toward reconciliation. The point Jesus is making is that when there is conflict, no matter how minor or how major, take every step to find reconciliation before you go in front of the judge. So it's obvious the Sermon on the Mount has temporal implications, right? Following the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount will impact how you live day after day. But we cannot disconnect like the material, the temporal, from the spiritual. Your ability to control anger and pursue reconciliation depends on God the Holy Spirit working in you. The Holy Spirit animates your your soul, to follow Christ and to follow the words of Christ. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5. It's my last text for the day. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, a new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, here's that word again, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Make a beeline for the cross. That's what Paul's doing here. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Our Lord Jesus, if you are a Christian, hear this. Our Lord Jesus reconciled you to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. And now... You have been given the charge because you are a new creation to tell others about how to be reconciled to God. 
So how is 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 5 connected? Like one's about the gospel and the other one's about how do we live? Am I putting like a round hole, a round peg into a square hole? I don't don't think so, and here's why. Christian, when Christ reconciled you to God, your trespasses and sins were no longer counted against you. You were forgiven because of Christ. The moment you were forgiven is the moment God sets you free to do the same thing to others. I mean, just stop for a moment and think about the multitude of your sins against God and others throughout your lifetime. How long is that list? My list will probably reach the moon. God has forgiven every sin on that list because of being reconciled to God through Christ. And now that ministry belongs to you. The homeowner who is tempted to anger may need to forgive his brother for knocking down the fence. The guy employed to build the she shed must make every effort to make the situation right. When the two sides check pride at the door, there is every opportunity to find resolution and reconciliation. Like this is the gospel practically at work in your life. So where do we go from here? It's pretty easy, I think. Have you been sinfully angry at someone? Right? Have you complained by saying, you fool, whether to the person or behind their back, or something equivalent to that, right? You need to repent, seek forgiveness, and ask God to replace anger with love. May your words be used to build up and not tear down. Have you been rightly accused of something? You know you did something wrong. You sinned against that other person, against God and against that other person. Ask God for the courage to lay down your pride to make whatever it is right. Make it right. Allow the costly grace of Christ to work in your life. Ultimately, it will be for your good and your actions that are coming from your heart. What's going on there? You bring glory to God. You, a sinful wretch, can bring glory to God by living in costly grace. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.